Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Aaron Hassan. Aaron is a 20-year marketer with high-growth and B2B companies selling into enterprises. Today, he runs AH Marketing and offers his services as a fractional chief marketing officer and offers a full-service marketing agency for founders who are short on time and they're looking for help uh, in order to address their marketing challenges. They've probably ended up with someone who's very good on data and maybe very good on using technology, but not necessarily getting the results that you're hoping for. So today we're going to explore why your marketing might not be working, what you can do in order to create alignment, why marketing as a function has given away their power and what they can do in order to bring value in order to get their seat at the table. So, Aaron, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. It's just a privilege to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Would you mind giving everyone a couple of minutes rundown on your history, please? Yes, uh, thank you for asking. I started in the military. I was an intelligence analyst for six years and worked as a defense contractor in Washington, D.C. for two more. So I started my career as an analyst. Um, I went from being an analyst to actually founding a company. I ran that company. I was a founder. I ran it for four years, uh, and it was acquired by an investor. And that's when I started my marketing career. So I began as an analyst that turned founder. Uh, that turned marketer. So when I come to companies, I think like an analyst, like a founder, and I approach things from that perspective as an entrepreneur, as well as as a marketer. As you said, I've spent the last 20 years helping high growth B2B tech companies succeed in the marketplace. And today I run AH Marketing with several customers in different industries where we apply proven frameworks and just bring to them a high growth approach. Okay, so tell me this. What was your best mistake when you were employed? And why did you end up deciding to go off on your own? My best mistake was actually, I told you when I founded this company, and one of the things I did, I knew nothing about marketing at that time. That is pre-marketing career. I'm basically getting an on-the-ground MBA. I ran into a problem that I just had to solve, like every entrepreneur, and I went about solving it and figuring it out. And so I had a small budget, you know, coming from Washington, D.C., I had saved a few pennies and put that together and started launching this company. We did rather well. We were top in Google. We were showing up on local TV and radio and in the business press and things like that. We did okay for ourselves. And then I decided, I think maybe out of hubris, to spend $10,000 on a billboard on I-4, which is the most trafficked highway here in Central Florida, where I live uh, in Orlando. Being ignored by millions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> the end result of that was, as you, as you can imagine, you know, zero business. So it fed my ego, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, so this then brings me to the next really important question. What, what I see people do time and time again is... Everyone is going off half-cocked, doing their own thing, thinking they're doing a really good job. Marketing gets 3% click-through rates and 15% conversions. So that's not bad. I mean, that would be considered pretty reasonable. But what that means is it failed to generate revenue 99.9955% of the time and only generated revenue 0.0045% of the time. 
by any stretch of the imagination, that would be considered failure in any other neck of the woods. However, they then pass those leads on to sales, and sales has to follow up five to 11 times on average for inbounds at the moment. And that means five to 11 touches. Some of them can be automated, but at some point they have to have a conversation with a human being or they have to engage them in a buyer-seller dialogue. This is all a massive distraction because if I've got a thousand inbound inquiries and only 45 are going to convert, 965 are not, and I'm going to have to do somewhere between four and a half thousand and ten and a half thousand follow-ups and incur just cost and admin time and take my salespeople away from their main job, which is bringing in successful, profitable customers for life. They then have to sell to anyone and anything, and they dump that problem over the wall to customer success who now has problem customers who churn. And then that becomes everyone's problem because if you've got 15% churn rate, it means you have to replace half your customers every three years just to stand still. Now, to me, this sounds and feels like massive endemic waste. Why on God's earth are these um, parts of the organization not completely aligned so that they don't end up doing a really good job creating negative unintended consequences downstream. And marketing is often where it starts with investment and leadership. I'm going to grant you that. But marketing is where the rubber hits the road and they start spending money and the problems really start to amplify. So help me understand why we do this repeatedly. Yeah. You know, I would say, as you just mentioned, that's a colossal waste of time and resources. Even if it looks like you're having interim success, long-term, you know, you're really, you're really stifling the business. Uh, because like you said, even if you put those type of customers in the funnel and then you happen to close a percentage of those customers, are they your loyal fans at the end of the day? Are they providing a retention rate, a high retention rate? Probably not. They're churning. So it starts at the beginning. And this is why I believe it's so important for marketers to market as an owner. And what I mean by this is not being tactic focused, not being channel focused, being strategy focused first. So not, not, not coming to every problem with an answer like SEO or social media or content marketing or email marketing. And this is the problem. This, that's what creates the quantity over quality approach. So I always start with strategy and starting with the customer. So the key to a good marketer is that they understand the market, that they understand the customer. This is what we bring to the table versus some of the other leaders in the organization. And that is our superpower. That is what gives us a seat at the table. When we can bring market insights, customer insights, and understanding business acumen uh, to solve the problems of the business and to do it in a way like the owner or founder would uh, from the perspective of lowest cost, highest return, um, shortest time, you know, those kind of efficiencies, while at the same time treating the customer, giving them an, ex an exceptional experience and talking to the right customer, obviously. So starting with strategy is key. And we have a way of doing that. We use proven frameworks, as I mentioned. Yeah, that's what I would say. But one of the things that I've started teaching my clients to do is to uh, develop um, their ICP and their anti-ICP. 
um, because it's now very possible using the AI to help you create content that puts the non-buyers, the people who will never buy, off. You can create themes and language patterns that attract your ICP and put off your non-ICP. Now, to my mind, that smacks of genius. And yeah, I'm not a little a bit proud of it because if I don't create the problem in the first place, then my salespeople don't have to do those follow-ups. They don't have to discount at the end of the quarter because they've had time to build their medium-term pipeline. Now, to come back to your point about strategy, I was at a CRO, sum uh, CRO summit a couple of weeks back, and I uh, came up with this model, which is a triangle. Um, you know, sales and marketing, we've got to keep it simple. So on one side, you've got driving, driving revenues. On the other side, you have relationships, and underpinning it all is strategy. But there tends to be an overemphasis on driving revenues and on the outcomes, not on the inputs, because they try and control the outcome. They try and control the result over which they have no control. So a huge amount of energy seems to be spent trying to measure stuff that doesn't matter and drive behavior that delivers negative unintended consequences and cost and waste and undermines shareholder value. And I think marketing should be the champion of explaining why this is broken, because at the end of the day, if you can create a pipeline of high-quality leads to, in the medium term, your salespeople have plenty of choice and contingency, so they never have to discount. They never have to buy bad business. Yes, and the way I do this is I leverage strategic marketing. So these are things like category creation, partner ecosystems, building new markets and revenue streams, building brand equity, starting movements. These are all approaches that draw the right people to you, that tell people what you stand for. Like you said, start to eliminate those that, that you know, aren't like you, right? They're not part of that community. And the way you get there, so we can, we can be multipliers is what I'm saying from the marketing space. We, if we take a strategic approach and understand where our power lies, we can multiply the business and draw in those folks uh, that are most like us, that most you know, see the world as we see it. And the way to do that, the starting point is I use uh, Andy Cunningham's six C's approach. I talked to you about proven frameworks. Andy Cunningham helped Steve Jobs launch the Mac in 1984. She repositioned BlackBerry, Cisco, Oracle, and some major Silicon Valley companies that you know. And she wrote a book called Get to AHA. I was personally mentored by her. She showed me her framework and I learned it. It's got six C's, core, customer, community, competitor, category, criteria. And it forces you to focus on the things that matter to building something that, that attracts the right kind of customer. So figuring out who you are and why you matter is core. Figuring out your customer, who your customer is and what, what do they really want. Figure out the community around your customer, which people and channels are most influential to that. Your competitors, obviously, understanding the market itself and, and what their innovations are versus yours and 
you know, what your superpower is versus theirs, the category you're in. And sometimes that means you may need to create a new category to get people excited about and, and to do something innovative. And, and, and the last one is criteria. But if you use this prism, you can start to do the kind of marketing that matters. And when you do the kind of marketing that matters, you're starting a movement. You're building fans. You're building awareness in the market, demand in the market. And this goes well beyond those direct marketing tactics like you know, cold calling and, and lead generation that looks a lot like what everyone else is doing. Right. Okay. So th this requires a shift in perception of time, though, because that is a medium to long-term strategy, and it's not being reactive and fixated on just making this quarter. You would think so, but it isn't. And I can, I can explain how. Um, okay, please. So when I start with any new company, either you know ones that I've worked for over the last 20 years or the clients that we take on today, I ask them to give me about six weeks. Six weeks is all I need to do feedback with their customers and prospects, with a number of them, with the right number of them, feedback with their internal experts and team members, market research, so I can look at the market and see the context of the market and what's going on, and I can analyze their competitors. Um, I can look at their current strategies. Then I can develop these six C's and then go back and have a workshop to gain alignment across the C-suite. So, you know, they give me feedback. I have specific questions and then we have conversations and I show them the results. I show them the realities and the market as it exists. We make some decisions. I turn that into a plan and a budget. That's six weeks. And then what I ask is that they give me three months three months to go test those propositions. We determined that this is the best, this is your buyer. This is the community that surrounds them, the people and the channels that influence them most. These, this is the language they use. This is how we win. This is the, our position of uh, our strongest position to take against these other competitors and on behalf of the customer. And then we go test that in the market. And at the end of three months, what we should see, I, I typically like to take between three and five channels and go test three and five channels. And at the end of that three months, you should start seeing pipeline derived from one to three of those channels. And so what you have is you have a start and you're starting to fill that pipeline. And then if you continue now, you after those three months, you start to reallocate those resources. Say I've gotten two or three really high quality channels. You can double down and then begin to develop the fourth or fifth again. So if you just take a measured approach and you begin to build pipelines. So you give me four months, we should have a trajectory toward your goals. We should be on the right path and you should see to hopefully two to three high quality channels. These companies, these, these companies oftentimes when they come to me, they're falling off a cliff. They're literally, their pipelines have dried up and they have no path. So three months is, you know, very little in terms of restarting that engine. And if they're sort of on the front end of that, they've just gotten investment, they want to do things the right way, and they want to build a foundation, we can help them as well. And so we do it based on, like I said, insights and intelligence and information, and then quality, quality testing. And so we're, you're building on a really solid cornerstone when you do it this way.
Um, we, we definitely need to have a talk offline about how we might be able to uh, co-sell and co-market because we're essentially doing largely the same thing within the same wicked problem space. And if we don't deal with these problems in parallel, then it all turns horribly wrong. Then going back to that model of driving revenue relationship and strategy, we've established that you need to have a clear strategy and you're trying to mitigate risk and be clear about what the job to be done is around which everyone must align. In these scale-up organizations, very often the job to be done is not clear or is deeply misunderstood. If you're privately held, generally the job to be done is to do a really good job for a particular set of customers and uh, produce products that don't come back for customers who do. When you take money from investors, the job to be done shifts. Now, you spent a lot of time in those fast uh, growth um, scale-up organizations that have got funding. Why is it they are so many of them have struggled to adapt to the changed context that we've been experiencing over the last eight or nine months? And what do you believe they need to do in order to uh, stop the rot and turn the tide? It's a great question. I've sat in many board meetings and talked to many investors and trying to influence them to get behind our strategy, support our team, give us the runway and the time needed to actually, you know, make make some hay in the market and, you know, really build them a business that's scalable and and I think I think most of them do not want to be as hands-on right? They're investors. So I use that to my advantage. They want to be involved. They want to make sure you're going in the right direction. They're ready to support because they want to multiply their, um, their money and their investment. So if you understand them and you can clearly show them what the, your strategy is and build trust, I think the key is trust. So uh, this is where that ownership perspective, I think, really helps. Because you come in understanding what drives the investor, the founder, the market, you, you get a sense for what everybody's playing for. And then you speak to them from that perspective. So whenever I would sit at these board meetings, I would try to make it super simple, super clear. And I think a marketer coming with leadership experience and understanding how to influence people under you know based on their drivers is part of it so i like to i like to build partnerships so i build partnerships with my sales leader with my ceo with my cfo and certainly my investors and to do that you've got to perform you've got to perform trust is built on competence but it's built on performance they have to like you they have you have to have clarity these are key things and if you can provide those you can you can give yourself enough time to do those things you know need to get done. And they'll begin, you'll have some credibility there. That's what I start with. And I hold myself accountable to the investors as much as to the CEO, as to my sales leader and my CFO. Okay, so that's really interesting. Let, let me ask you this. Given the current context in which most people are operating, which is um, economic uncertainty, people buying only must-haves, 
um, nice to have sort of going into very long-winded uh, cycles and com uh, big committees. And there's pressure to reduce costs. There's pressure to hire talent, but they're losing them. There, there's all this confusion. And over in Europe, we have World War III starting, all this fun stuff. Experience has taught me that often the salespeople turn up and they are not prepared, they're not researched, they're not practiced, they don't think about the context in which the customer is operating. And because of the lack of alignment between sales, marketing, CS, management, leadership, then there's an awful lot of communication going to and fro to the customer. I was speaking to one of the big four today, and there are three different organizations that my point of contact knows of that are all contacting the CFO of billion to three billion pound companies. And they're all contacting them about the same thing, but differently. What kind of message does that send? I mean, with the CFO of all people, the confidence that you don't project when you cannot align your own organization and you're asking me to spend millions with you. So what is it that marketing has to do to take the lead on this? Yeah, I'll tell you a story. We were, I was, it was my first marketing gig after I owned my business and it was acquired. We, I, I, I was fresh. My CEO sent me to Sandler sales training, which I know you were a trainer at, and asked me to lead the sales team as well as the marketing program. And this was a small startup. And fortunately, we were able to double the size of the business in a year. And the way we did that is we were a single effort. So we didn't understand that there were divisions. We didn't get that. This was my first gig. I didn't understand my first gig in market. I had no concept that these things in most companies are divided. So sales and marketing was one effort. I was cold calling and leading a sales team, as I mentioned, doing marketing campaigns, building a strategy for the business, doing both brand and performance marketing, as you would call it, as well as sales outreach. So when you're all in it together like that, from a survival standpoint, it takes care of a lot of things. It forces you to align, right? And I think, I know these larger companies, as you mentioned, will have issues with communications, disparate communications across the organization. Um, left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I think that goes back to a challenge with the a marketing leader not standing in their traditional space because it, the perspective, I think many times in the past, before we came into you know, such a data-centric society, such a specialist-oriented marketing function, was that marketing was the tip of the spear because it was strategic, because it knew the market, it built the brand, it, it unified the business internally and unified the community and the customer externally. It handled public relations as, as much as it handled direct marketing and sales support. And it really had to be, there was, there was as they used to say, you know, there's two, two parts of any business, which is innovation and marketing. And so that was the perspective. But I'm not sure we can be trusted to do that anymore. 
I'm not sure the folks that have grown up in a data-centric specialist environment truly understand the multiplication capabilities that we have, the unifying capabilities that we have, and actually provide that type of leadership within the organization to be something that the investors, the founders, the C-level can trust to hand off and hold accountable uh, for communications across, for customer communications. So now they're happening in CS, in customer success, in sales, in marketing, and disparate places across the business. And there's really no leader in terms of the message. And that's unfortunate. Like I said, with Andy Cunningham, who worked for Steve Jobs, you know, she was the messenger and he relied on her. And, uh, and so there was a single point of contact, single point of failure, single point of, you know, the buck stopped there. When Apple messaged, they went through Regis McKenna and Andy Cunningham and some of these great names because they were the folks that everyone lined up beneath in order to put out the message to the world so that you have a consistent message across all channels, whether they be press, uh, whether they be customer channels and the like. So how do you create uh, an environment of consistency in an era of community, AI, and the internet? Those don't really work, do they? They actually do. I would say that the more disparate we get, the more lonely and isolated, I'll, I'll go that far, we get, disconnected we get, the more we need relationships and communities and things like that. And so we want to gather, we want to connect, we want to do these things, but often they're happening in ways that are untrackable. You talk about dark social channels and you know, I'm on a Discord channel with the Rise community with Mark Schaefer of you know, marketing leaders. And this is where I go to sift through and sort through the litany of information out there to find the truth. So when I'm looking for a new solution or a recommendation, who do I trust? Trust the people in my community to recommend. I don't go to Google anymore. I don't go to social media anymore. Those are biased channels. I go to what I perceive as unbiased channels. And you're not going to salespeople either. That's correct. Which, yeah. Which is the depressing uh, side of all of this. Okay. <laughs> so tell me this you, you've got a changing market, you've got highly trained uh, sellers who are not able to get in front of customers. The marketing function is not producing as it used to. Cold calling is at least 70% down. Email has fallen off a cliff. The people you really want to talk to uh, are impossible to reach. They don't answer emails. They don't pick up the phone. The only way to get to them is through people who they already know, like, and trust. So what do we have to do to get that message through to investors and to founders and CEOs and CROs that we need to learn to play nicely with others, that um, the market is moving in such a direction that the if you're selling tech, certainly, it's become so complicated. That, I mean, you could have 20 different vendors just for your security stack. The MarTech and sales tech, uh, you know, that, that's a technology spaghetti, trying to navigate all of that. So we've got all of this complexity just trying to use the stuff. Imagine being the person buying it, maintaining it, running it, making sure it's secure. So they're not going to want to talk to a thousand different vendors. They're going to want to talk to a handful of partners. That's How right. do we get people to open their eyes to that? I often term it trust-centered marketing. And what you need to do here is you need to do what Seth Godin suggests 
what Walt Disney knew, what Steve Jobs understood. You have to start approaching business in a way that you build something people care about and that you take up your customer's cause, that you provide value at every touch point. That's what happens. You do these things and people want to talk to you. You build demand. You, you, you don't have to push anything. It's a different dynamic. And I know, I know that urgency and time and, and pressure make people feel and marketers feel they need to do the things that they're, they're not always proud of, which is spamming folks and putting out generic content that AI could produce. Okay, you know. but I'm going to have to pick you up on that. It's a choice. They do it. They make the decision to press send. They write this shit, and then they still put it out. Yeah. I'm not going to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt on this. Um, they copped out, and they sacrificed their reputation, their word. They sacrificed being timely, relevant, and valuable in order mm -hmm. to get a short-term pressure off their, off their back. And that is an idiotic decision. Don't do it. If, you, if you're out there listening, for goodness sake, do not sacrifice your reputation, your word, your integrity for a short-term advantage to get your boss off your case, to get one deal over the line for any job. It's no, just and not worth it. You mentioned, you know, part of the marketer's job is to understand the context of the market. If you're reading any of the surveys, uh, Ipsos survey, this year said that brand trust is the number one driver of consumer purchases right now. You've probably heard the Adobe research that said 71% of UK customers were likely to stop purchasing from a brand that breaks their trust. There was a B2B marketer sentiment survey uh, on LinkedIn, which said the number one opportunity for B2B marketers today is investing and in building in relationships and trust. Consumers are shouting from the rooftops that we need to do things the right way. If we want to earn their business, to earn their attention, then they're looking for something different. And something different is opposed to what you just described. It's, it's not taking the easy way out. It's what does it mean to date someone, to build a friendship, to build an acquaintance, to build trust with someone? We've got to get back to the basics. They have to become aware of us. Then they have to build an affinity to us. And then they have to begin to trust us. And that that's the pattern. And, and those are the things that marketing should begin to pursue along with sales. And so you do these things the right way. And like you said, the key, I think, you know, the, the, the core of this is when you get down, when once you understand who you are in the market, so you can be authentic as a business in your communication and you're trustworthy, once you figure out your side of the equation, then you understand your customer and who they are and what they're trying to do. And you can come alongside them and make them the hero and support them and add value in every touch point. You figure out their community, where they go for information. I just mentioned I go to the Rise community uh, to find out you know, the answers to my questions. You have to figure out what influences them. And you have to you know, seek to earn your way into those spaces. I've done this analysis on many companies, and, and I found in some spaces that analysts were held in high regard. So they would go to analysts and trust analysts for information, uh, particularly in you know, highly complex environments and, and technology industries. It could be communities. It could be analysts. It could be certain groups 
And like I said, even certain publications that they rely on, you have to start showing up consistently over time and earning your right to get in front of that customer and influence that customer. And and that's the only way that really works today. Well, I think there's a major challenge here because if the emphasis, the job to be done is on driving a quarterly valuation target, then if you're operating in that environment, what can a CMO or a marketer do to turn the ship without getting it in the neck for not delivering the terrible metrics that don't mean anything and then create the conditions so that the business can actually flourish in the future and be sustainable and profitable, heaven forbid. You have to be credible. You have to walk into that room with high credibility yourself. So as much as I'm, what I'm doing in the marketplace, I'm doing with internal stakeholders. So I'm going to hold myself to qualified meetings, to revenue generation, revenue support, to loyalty. I hold myself to high standards and they know that that we're not going to talk about anything that doesn't drive the result that they're interested in. So I take the approach I just described and I hold myself accountable to my sales organization that every meeting I set is going to be a meeting with a company that we've, you know, agreed to with a title that we've agreed to is is the correct buyer is is somebody important to speak with and that I have sufficient information that justifies a conversation and their time. And when you do that consistently with your sales team, you begin to build trust. When you start supporting revenue within the sales pipeline, within the sales funnel itself, sometimes marketing wants to provide that meeting and, to, and then walk away. It's not the case. I told you the example earlier when I didn't know better in my first job and we were a single team. We took these accounts all the way to, to close and then all the way to starting them up on the platform, providing them service together. Because we, it, it, was, it was, you know, either we were going to win together or the company was going to fail together. So you take a perspective. So once you get into the sales cycle, the sales part of the funnel, you need to show up there as well. They need ROI calculators. They need use cases and customer stories. They need specific decks. They need on and on, they need different things based on the client situation. You need to be adding value at every touch point and every conversation. You can empower your sales team to do that and you can work alongside them. And then when the revenue comes in from those activities, you're more of a part of it. You know, you can attribute that to the marketing effort. But what I don't like to see is, hey, their elite came in through search, Google search. We're claiming it on our, on our metrics. And then sales says, yeah, but we talked once and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get them to follow up with me. So the next time we saw them was at a trade show and I had to restart them. That's our lead. No, that's our lead. No, that's our lead. It's bogus. It's garbage. And it's got to stop. And why would it matter? Because the attribution, this then raises another really important question about compensation and measurement. Because you know, what, what you measure tends to happen, what you don't doesn't, and how you compensate drives behavior. And I, I see time and time again the number of comp plans that drive negative unintended consequences because of how we measure and how we bonus, how we promote, how we hire. And 
they're not taking into account the customer. They're driven by selfish self-interest and short-termism, which effectively means the customer becomes the forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse, while the salespeople have to go out and execute in a way that makes them feel deeply uncomfortable. And it does one of two negative things. Uh, one is it creates a culture where the negative behavior, the intolerable, is tolerated. And the other is where people do nothing and they paralyze. Those are the typical outcomes. And then it just becomes a, a case of everyone blaming everyone else. So what does leadership need to do in terms of creating absolute clarity so that there is no ambiguity? And what messages do they need to send out? And who do they need to enlist in order to ensure that senior leaders all speak with one voice? I think coming around a set of real of, of higher quality metrics, like I said, like holding your accountability is key. So if everybody's accountable for the business, like it shouldn't, I want the CEO, the founders to feel like they have a partner in their leaderships, in their in their sales leader, in their marketing leader, in their product leader, and that we are all working together. So to the extent, I think they should be tracking how well we're working together. Um, I think they should be tracking, you know, the the obviously the velocity, of course, how things are moving through, because that is a sign of whether or not you're resonating and whether or not the relationship is building and growing. Sometimes it, it takes longer than others. People are sometimes not in market. They're just not going to budget this year. They're going to budget next year. And that's okay. And they're, they're mostly not in market. There's about three to five percent that might be. The other ninety-five percent aren't, and about forty percent of them might be in the next one to three years. But all of the focus on the three percent who might be in the market now means that you're swimming around in a shark-infested ocean with all of your competition, and it very rapidly becomes a descent into a fight over price. So yeah. What is it that we need to do to shift the mindset, the belief systems of marketing, of sales, especially given the current context? Because they're probably telling themselves a lot of stuff that isn't true, and there's quite a bit of catastrophizing going on. And I get it. The environment today is hard. The economy is creating some headwinds. People are not necessarily making their numbers. We're getting into desperation in some cases in terms of their leadership cracking down on them, micromanaging them, um, things like that. And, you know, there's no silver bullet here, but what you have to do is you have to be human. You have to actually perform. You have to go out there each and every time and take a quality approach so that you build relationships. We're after market share. We want to grow our market share as a business. I want to be the most successful business in this category. And that, you know, sometimes that means building great partner ecosystems. Sometimes that means, you know, connecting with key influencers that then give you access to certain organizations. So these are, if you look at macro metrics, as we call them, or things that, that, that matter, and you were to compare a successful company to one that struggles or that's just barely making it, what you're going to see in the one that's barely making it uh, is they're focused on one deal at a time. 
They're focused on short-term numbers. They're focused, they're not playing the long game, the infinite game as, um, as Simon Sinek puts it. So I would look at whether or not our influence is growing among those that matter. If we're becoming more influential in our space, if people want to hear us, they want to, you know, lots of things like, are we getting speaking gigs? Are analysts reaching out to us? Are partners reaching out, reaching back to us? If you start to see that momentum build in the industry, then you know you're saying something and doing something that matters. You know you're influencing the industry. And you can bet that when buyers are out there looking for the company that they most want to work with, and you're going to be one of the ones that come up in that conversation. And then when you get the opportunity to connect with them, you earn it at every every touch point in every conversation. That's the way to build momentum and, and build market share in a space. And do it quickly, actually. I couldn't agree more. Again, I bang on about this on almost every episode. You have to be timely, relevant, and valuable on every touch. If you're not, you are an unwelcome interruption to their already busy day. Don't be interrupting them unless you've got a good reason to do so and that you're advancing their understanding of their situation or their problem and opening their eyes to new possibilities. That is our job when they're in the passive looking phase. And the bulk of the buying cycle, the buying journey, is in passive looking. They do not want to have a sales conversation when they're in passive looking. They're learning how. When they move from passive to active looking, then they are ready to have a sales conversation. If you have done what Aaron has suggested, and you've turned up and you're timely, relevant, and valuable consistently, reliably, and you've subordinated your own self-orientation, i.e. your self-advantage, in order to help them serve their needs first, and you've been vulnerable enough to open up and share your concerns, share your intimacies, they will open up and you will have trust. And you can do that very quickly. You can do that on a first meeting. You can start to establish trust. Now, it takes time to embed, and that requires the consistency. However, the idea that you have to wait months and months and months to get referrals, recommendations, introductions, the idea that you have to wait months and months and months to get good data out of customers that can help you help them better is insane. Your existing customers, your unhappy customers can tell you so much information. So talk to me about that. Why is it important to go out into the market to find out um, and speak to people who disagree with you and have fired your organization? Absolutely, because it's not about you. It really isn't about you. You didn't keep a promise. You let them down somewhere. But we as, we as people are very forgiving. But let's say even if they don't begin to work with you again, right? The fact that you just reached out sends a signal that you care. So let's start there. So when you reconnect, what you're saying is, we made a mistake. I'd love to find out more about this. If there's the ability to, re- to earn your trust again, we want to try that. But if not, we're okay with it. We, we really seek to understand. And it says something about you. These are relationships again. So what would you do if it was a family member or a girlfriend or a best friend from school? I mean, we really need to treat people like human beings and really seek, like I said, to to serve. 
and to get out there and to understand. And so when you take that approach and you have a conversation like that, it not only changes minds in some cases, not every case, it sets you on a course uh, to be able to acquire the information you really need to hear. Because like you said, it's our failures that teach us the most in life. And this is the case with customers we've lost, but there is a way to turn it around. And sometimes the recovery is better than the original approach. So everybody loves a great story and a turnaround story. So, you know, people are inclined to want to help. That's what I would say to your losses and going out after insights behind those losses. I was listening to a really interesting book by a lady called Maria Konnikova, and it's called The Biggest Bluff. And she's a psychologist who decided she wanted to learn poker. And she spent a year learning poker, getting coached, and then winning championships. And what was so fascinating about this was just how important it is to understand that poker is a game of people. And probability doesn't have a memory. And one of the worst things you can do is double down on your first mistake with the second mistake and then compound it with a third. Now, I see that gambler's fallacy happening a lot where people think that their luck is going to turn. Every time you flip a coin, it's 50-50. It never changes. It's 50-50, And our ability to self-delude and convince ourselves that we can buck the trend. I know a lot of salespeople who think through their charm and their wit, they're going to be able to overcome three billion years of evolutionary hardwiring and convince someone's brain to buy their stuff when they have no need or desire. So what can we do to raise the level of awareness of the operators, the people on the ground speaking to customers, working with customers and customer success and operations, the field engineers, what can we do to have them act as the sharp end of the spear for marketing? Because they're on the ground, they're speaking to people, they're seeing the mess that the customer is creating for themselves firsthand. Why are we not enlisting these people into the whole process? You know, I mentioned we need to, as marketers, create a movement. And that what I what I neglected to say is, and a movement, a movement is emotional. There's a purpose. The reason it has force, the reason it, 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 you know, people are so excited to get behind a movement is because it's based on emotion. And we know that people buy emotionally and justify intellectually. So this can help us. And, you know, Brooke Sellis, she wrote uh, a book called Conversations That Connect. And she did a bunch of research on this. She's a social media expert and author. And she says that brands fail to connect in part because they communicate in cliches and facts versus feelings and opinions. So when we're talking about empathy, authenticity, as well as logic, we have to be human. And brands, in order to be human, need to speak more emotionally and share their opinions and things like that appropriately. And so what I would do is equip not only my customer success, my sales team, my products, all of that with with language that is consistent with a movement that it is emotionally charged and meaningful to the market, to my buyer. And when we start to interact with them, I was recently on a Disney cruise with my family. And I, I mentioned Walt Disney and how he, he so well understood this. And every touch point on that ship, they were seeking to serve 
And they were doing so in a way that showed that they were excited to be there and excited to help me. Now, how, how can we make your day better? And it's this thing that endears you to them. And even if every ride on the ship, they had these, you would go down these tubes into the pool. If every ride wasn't working or the food wasn't quite the standard, although it was, it was exceptional, or something didn't go well, you knew by and large, these people were out for your good. They were out to support you. They were there for you. And, and so you could forgive, you know, those types of, of failures, quote unquote, right? These are human relationships. We need to understand those and we need to empower those on the front line uh, with language, with purpose, and really a mission to serve that customer, to connect with that customer. You know, Zappos, Tony Shea, God rest his soul, was a big proponent of allowing his callers, you know, the, the client success team there, the ones that would answer the calls for customers, to stay on the line as long as it took. And half of those times, it would be therapy sessions. Sometimes it would be ordering, ordering out for pizza for their clients. I mean, they went so far as to do what it took to satisfy the needs and desires of their customers and invest in, in, in those moments in that time. I think uh, the longest call I think they did was like 13 hours, something like that, of a help call, right? You know, a support call. So that's a commitment. That's an investment. That They but truly they believe in what they're saying. Yeah. Say again? And for a shoe shop, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, we've, we've come to time. I just want to do a quick summary before we wrap up. From what I'm hearing, your job is to be timely, relevant, and valuable on every single touch with your prospect throughout their entire buying journey. Your job is to be their ally and to have their back. So that means you have to be biocentric and you have to put their needs before yours. Your needs need to be met eventually. However, what you also need is clarity of communication. Community is where you build resilience. It's also where you create a high challenge, high support, safe environment for the people who you attract. And in doing that, what you are paying attention to is their needs. You're listening to them. You're meeting the fundamental human need that people need to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And in thinking deeply as your customer, you're ensuring that you're minimizing the, uh, the waste and you're maximizing the efficacy of your marketing. Is that a fair summary? I love that summary. That's a great summary. And, and I would say, you know, marketing is both an art and a science. We are, you know, psychologists, sociologists. We have to get a lot of things right. And, and while what, a lot of what you just talked about was outward focus, market focus, I'd say you have to apply the same things to your own business. We as marketers have to be leaders inside the organization. Our team members, our counterparts need the same things that you just described. And that's Absolutely. how you build trust and confidence with the CEO and the C-suite to be able to do the things that you need to do and have the timeline and have the runway in order to accomplish and build brand equity as well as pipeline and demand generation. Those two things can happen simultaneously uh, if you're smart, and if you start with insights and strategy and understanding and listening, and like you said, if you're self-aware, 
So yes, that those are that, that's what it takes. I always term that as you know marketing like an owner. That's how I summarize that. We like to market as owners here and come from that perspective, but also bring to the table what only marketing can bring. And those are the things that have been abdicated in in recent years as we've gotten more into a data centric, specialist oriented marketing approach. I would add to that to compound it that we've become data technology and finance uh, focused at the expense of relationships and strategy and profit. And a lot of this was stemmed from um, the old model where money was free and the objective was to acquire market share and get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible and make it someone else's problem to pick up the pieces. Now you can't do that. Money's expensive. People aren't just parting with it willy-nilly. And you've got to be generating revenue. And you also have to be sustainable. And you have to be diverse if you're going to get the money. So the landscape, the context has changed dramatically. And if marketing isn't that finger on the pulse, the ear to the ground, then chances are the rest of the organization will carry on doing what it always did. And I'm seeing that a lot at the moment. Organizations and individuals have not adapted to the new context, and they're dying on their feet. We all know there's something wrong. and Yeah, and Seth Godin in his newest book talked to this. He said, business is broken. We know it. And a lot of it is based on industrial thinking. And we've got to stop because it's more important today to be human as, as you're talking about AI and automation and you're talking about saturation and, and, and people are overwhelmed. We have to be more human. We have to be clear in our messaging. We have to be empathetic and you know we have to be for them. And that's, that's the kind of marketing and selling that works today. It's time to stop. It's time to stop, like you said, being data-centric, technology-centric, finance-centric, um, you know, those are part of the puzzle, but they're not the drivers and they need to serve. They need to serve the larger purposes. They need to serve human beings now. So let's get yeah, back absolutely. to that. And the, the other thing that people mistake is that the channel has always been the same throughout, no matter what technology came on. And that's the human brain. The medium changes, the mechanism changes, the technology changes, but humans adapt. And at the end of the day, it's about feeding the brain the information and the emotions that it needs, the feelings that it needs in order to be able to uh, have it by. And that is our challenge. Tell me this as a final question. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can advise the idiot Aaron age 23. You thought you were invincible, immortal, and you knew everything. What one bit of advice should you have given him if you had that time machine? I would say that it's never too early to start growing your network and building your personal brand. So just like we apply to the business, I would tell that to myself and say, you know, I spent so much time serving companies and, and good on me. We had a lot of success and I was able to help a lot of people find what they were looking for, help a lot of consumers be served. But uh, at the same time, throughout my career, I didn't necessarily you know, really invest in the networks and the personal brand. You know, so at this stage in my career, as I launched AH Marketing and stopped working for individual companies as their marketing leader, I would have loved to have a deeper and wider network and a strong personal brand. And, you know, right now, for instance, I'm, I'm looking to write a book on, you know, how to market like an owner and to, to kind of put forth, 
this perspective into the marketplace, it would be so much easier if I had 20 years of a brand and an audience and a network. So I tell the 23-year-old Aaron Hassan to, you know, take some time, not only help your business, help help you, the company you're working for, but also the future relies on, you know, personal brands and relationships and all of that. And so you need to do that for yourself as well. Excellent. And I have a fix for that for, uh, for people like you who are very experienced but don't have that personal brand as they launch. So we can chat about that offline. How can people get a hold of you? Please go to my website. It's my name, Aaron Hassan, A-A-R-O-N-H-A-S-S-E-N.com. And on there, you'll see how to follow my LinkedIn newsletter. I send out a weekly newsletter uh, with my thoughts and ideas and uh, latest inspiration and insights on what's happening in the marketplace. So you can get all my ideas there for free every week. Follow me on LinkedIn. But yeah, go to my website as a starting point. You're going to see a lot of interviews like this one and with folks, like I mentioned, Mark Schaefer, Andy Cunningham, Sangram Bajre, Anthony Anarino. I've interviewed these folks for my own expert interview series that I do as a way to learn. So you can get access to those through my website, get access to my content through that website. So that would be the starting point. Lovely. Aaron Hassan, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, and tag somebody who could benefit from this. Now, if you're somebody who is historically successful in sales and the context has changed, but for some reason you haven't been able to adapt, so your pipeline is a bit dry, the deals are taking longer, you're not converting as much, and you're being dragged inexorably to the temptation to stretch your values, then give me a call before you have to do that. It's just not worth it. So if you want to sell within your principles, then drop me a line and I'll send you my guiding principles of principle selling as well. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, marcus at laughs-last.com. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.